Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, is our text for this morning. If you haven't already turned there, I want to encourage you to do so. I would encourage you to take notes this morning. Again, you'll always listen better, I think, if you take notes. Think with me for just a moment here. Have you ever considered the price tag that accompanies sin? Do you often consider the price tag that accompanies sin? We saw it in our text this morning in Proverbs chapter 7 as the young man follows the adulterous woman back to her quarters. As a matter of fact, the text says he does so not knowing that it will cost him his life. Sin always comes with a high price tag. Sin cost Adam and Eve their fellowship with God and ultimately their lives. Sin cost Moses a life in the promised land. Sin cost Jesus his life. Oftentimes when making a large purchase, individuals consider the immediate cost, but they don't think down the road and and consider the true cost of ownership. Think about a car, for instance. A lot of times when individuals go to purchase a car, they think about the immediate cost. Can I, can I pay the monthly payment? Can I make the monthly payment without ever considering the long-term cost of owning that automobile? Without ever thinking about the true cost of ownership. Sin is similar in that it has an immediate cost that sometimes we are willing to pay. Sometimes we consider the cost. And in our sin, we're willing to pay what we think is the immediate cost. We'll justify ourselves at times. We'll justify our actions and our attitudes and our behavior and our words. But we must always remember that there is also a true cost to sin that not one of us are prepared to pay. One man wrote this, The price of sin is very high, though now it may seem low. And if we let it go unchecked, its crippling power will grow. Sin always comes with an immense price tag. If you're taking notes this morning, write that down. Number one, sin always comes at a cost. Sin always comes at a cost. I want to back up for just a few minutes here uh, and kind of survey verses 1 through 3, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We exposited or shined light on that text last week. I want to say a few other things before we continue on in our study this morning, verses 4 through 6. But sin always comes at a cost. We opened our study last week with Jonah making an attempt to disobey God and to run from him. And disobedience always comes at a high cost. First, Jonah turned from the word of God. We saw that back in verses 1 and 2. Jonah, presumably the narrator of his own story, look back at verses 1 and 2, says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up from before me. You see, when Jonah disobeyed and attempted to run from God, it cost Jonah the word of God. But secondly, when Jonah turned from God, it cost him the presence of God. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, friends, there are drastic consequences for such an attempt to disobey God and to run from him. As you began to see last week, the consequences of sin is always downward. The consequences of sin are always downward. When Jonah resigned service... 
to God, when he, when he turned in his profit card and resigned his job, so to speak, he went down to Joppa. And then we see Jonah going down into the ship. And then we see Jonah lying down to sleep. And at the end of chapter 1, we'll see Jonah going down into the waters. Friends, downward is always the way of disobedience. You cannot rebel against God and go up. When you disobey God, there will inevitably be, if not now, then later, a downfall. It's as true as day. Downward is always the direction of sin. Downward is always the course of disobedience. Charles Spurgeon once said this, God will not let his children sin successfully. You can take it to the bank all day long. It's as good as gold. God will not let his children sin successfully. And it's important to note that we should never be deceived by favorable circumstances when we're in sin. Remember, here is Jonah. He decides to run from God. Everything seems to be working out his way. He successfully made it to Joppa. There he found a ship bound to Tarshish. He had the money to buy a ticket or to pay the fare. And when he boarded the ship, he was comfortable enough and confident enough that he even went to sleep. But the ship lying in the harbor was not meant to be an escape from God's clearly revealed word, but rather an instrument in the hands of God to bring his servant back to his senses. What Jonah might have thought of as the providence of God. Oh, there's a ship. Oh, I have the money. Oh, I can lay down and take a nap here. What Jonah might have thought as being God's providence was really a test. There's a great lesson here for each of us, by the way, friends. God communicates primarily through his word, which is the way that God communicated to Jonah first. The word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, God communicates primarily through his word and not through our experiences, not through our feelings, not through what we even think is the providence of God. Do not foolishly take the events of your daily life as your instructor if you have not first taken God's word to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. We do that all the time, though. We live in light of our feelings. We live in light of our experiences. All to our detriment. If God's word has not first been a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You see, Jonah was on the wrong ship going in the wrong direction, and he was on a collision course with the discipline of God. From his thinking, from his vantage point, from his perspective, though, he thinks everything's going according to plan. Maybe even God has changed his mind. It seems as though everything's happening uh, in a way that, that allows me to run away from God. Maybe God has changed his mind. Maybe God didn't really mean what he said. Friends, God always means what he says. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? You know, interestingly enough, that's one of the verses that your Bible doesn't answer. There's no answer to that question. Do you know why? It's because the answer is emphatically implied. God never speaks and then not acts. He never promises and then not fulfills. Every time God speaks, he means exactly what he says. James Montgomery Boyce notes, there's no question about our being allowed to resist or to disobey God. We do it all the time. We do it easily sometimes, as a matter of fact. Virgil, the ancient Roman poet, Uh, an atheist, by the way, once said this, true words from the mouth of an unbeliever, the descent to hell is oftentimes easy. 
When we disobey God, he doesn't rearrange the stars of heaven to say, stop, don't go any farther. He lets us go at first. At first, he doesn't put great obstacles in our path. He simply lets us go downhill and pay for our own foolish choices. However, and there is a however, when one of God's children persists in disobedience, God gets rougher. God gets tougher. He begins gently, just like we gently disobey. But if we persist, God will send a storm. God will send a tempest to bring back his child. God will do whatever it takes to rock our little worlds so that we obey. God will not let his children sin successfully. Jonah's confrontation with the living God warns us that spiritual rebellion or sin is always costly. In our study last week, we saw that there was a literal price that Jonah had to pay in his attempt to flee from the presence of God. He paid the fare. He purchased the ticket. There was a literal price that Jonah had to pay in his attempt to try to flee from the presence of God. Look back at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it. But the cost of the fare, whatever it was, pales in comparison to the spiritual cost of Jonah's misadventure. Paul reminds us in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, he what? Reaps. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Spiritual rebellion is always costly. Disobedience is always costly. Sin is always costly. God may make you pay with cash up front, or he may make you pay by credit later. Either way, spiritual rebellion will always cost you. Sin will take you farther than you're willing to go, keep you longer than you're willing to stay, and it will cost you more than you are willing to pay. And it always costs. But the interesting thing about sin is that you never ultimately get what you paid for. Sin always costs, but you never ultimately get what you paid for. Jonah paid for a ticket to sail from Joppa to Tarshish, but he never reached his destination. That's what happens when you rebel against God. It costs you, but you never get what you pay for. Sin always promises and never delivers, at least in the end. It may deliver temporarily, but it always ends in death and destruction. It's been said that diving to the bottom for pleasures We oftentimes bring up more gravel than pearls. A lot of truth in that statement, friends. Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist tells us, God promises in Psalm 16, 11, in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But regrettably, Jonah, and subsequently we do as well, oftentimes cash in the joy of obedience for the seeming comfort, the seeming temporal comfort of disobedience. The problem, though, friends, is that we cannot escape God's presence. Jonah could not escape God's presence, and we cannot escape God's presence, even if we won't joyfully live in it. Catch that? We can't escape God's presence, even if we won't humbly and submissively and joyfully live in it. We still can't escape it. With that being said, for point number one there, sin always comes at a cost. A brief review of verses one through three. Let me encourage you to stand this morning as we turn our attention to our text. 
we'll pick up two additional points along the way. Jonah, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, pins the following words. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and maybe we will not perish. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. Go ahead and take a seat. Number two on your outline this morning, and here's where we'll pick up with our text for this morning in verse four. Sin always invites the discipline of God. Sin always invites the discipline of God. It always comes at a great cost, a cost that we are unwilling to pay, and it always invites the discipline of God. Let me direct your attention back briefly to verse number four. Look there with me. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Sin and disobedience always serve as an invitation for the discipline of God. Verse 4 opens to a new scene in the book of Jonah here. Jonah, again, presumably narrating his own story, his own account, seems to stress that his intentions will not be as smoothly executed as he originally or previously had thought. Again, we need to remember that God sits on the throne. God calls the shots. God. God is the lighthouse. And when he tells us to change our course, we must change our course. Because the lighthouse is not moving. And the word of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord has come to Jonah and said, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh and call out against it. Two things Jonah was commanded to do in verses 1 through 3. Go and preach. Jonah disregarded and disobeyed the word of the Lord. He sought to go the opposite direction. And in doing so, he has sent an invitation to the Lord for his discipline. God has commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh. And God will not take no for an answer. Jonah's trying, foolish as it is, to flee from the presence of the Lord, but he will soon find, as we will when we try to escape the Lord, that there is no escape. Not only is Jonah physically out to sea, but in his disobedience, he is spiritually out to sea as well. So are we when we are in the middle of sin and disobedience. We are out to sea. Jonah has lost his spiritual anchor, he's lost his spiritual moorings, and he is drifting out into dangerous waters. Now, it's interesting to note that this nautical metaphor that we pick up on here in Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 4, is also used in the New Testament to describe the exact same spiritual condition that we see Jonah in. Don't turn there, but just let me have you ear for a second here. The writer of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You see, when we fail to hold fast to the Word of God, eventually we will drift away from the Word of God. When we pull up the anchor of our lives from the sure foundation of God's Word, spiritual chaos is always 
always the result. Now this storm that we see here in the text dominates the events of the rest of Jonah chapter 1. God is demonstrating through this storm that he controls Jonah's fate even outside of the boundaries of his own homeland. God called Jonah to obedience in his own homeland. Jonah gets in a boat to flee from the presence of the Lord. And what God is demonstrating through the storm is that I'm not confined to the boundaries of your homeland. I'm sovereign and I sit on the throne and there's not a place you can go where I am not. And I will send whatever raging tempest I have to to bring you back to obedience. God is reminding us through Jonah that we can run but we cannot hide and that God will never take no for an answer. This storm is no coincidence. Nothing happens by coincidence, as a matter of fact. There is no such thing. If God is sovereign, if God sits on the throne, there is no such thing as coincidence, there is no such thing as accidents. This storm is coming right from the hand of God. All creation, including the sea, beckons at God's call, beckons to God's voice. It's interesting to note again that the opening line of Jonah says this, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But God is no longer speaking to Jonah through his word. Sin cost Jonah the word of God. Sin cost Jonah the voice of God here. Now God is speaking to Jonah through his works. God has spoken to Jonah through his word. Jonah suppressed God's word. Now God is speaking, not through his word, but through his works. Jonah's no longer hearing God speak to him. Now God is speaking through the wind and the rain and the thunder and the raging sea and through a great fish. It's interesting to note that though Jonah disobeyed God, all else in creation obeyed him. God sent the waves and they came crashing. God sent the wind and it blew forth. God created the storm and it said, yes, sir. God sent the fish, and the fish went. And Jonah looks at God and says, no. Foolish. Foolish. God, in his displeasure towards Jonah's sin, sends out, your Bible may say, a a better or a more literal translation of the Hebrew there is, God hurls, it's the Hebrew word tool, think T-O-O-L, tool, There, God hurls a great wind upon the sea. Spurgeon again says, The omnipotent, speaking about God, has servants everywhere. The Lord is never short of sheriff's officers to arrest his fugitives, even if it comes by way of wind and rain. God has the wind in his storehouse, and again, it beckons at his command. The psalmist tells us this in Psalm 135. It is he who makes the clouds to rise at the ends of the earth, who makes the lightnings for the rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. God has the winds in his treasury. God has the rain in his storehouses. And just like a sheriff's officer, God will send it to arrest his servant. It's safe to say this is no ordinary storm. Though it doesn't come across in our English translations, the Hebrew text actually personifies the ship here. Matter of fact, verse 4 actually says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship thought that she was ready to break up. 
I mean, this is not your everyday storm. This is a massive storm. A massive storm. If we ever think that God sits idly by while we ignore and openly rebel against his word, we are sorely mistaken. Let God's actions in verse 4 serve as a notice for each one of us that he is prepared to break up the ship, drown Jonah, and let all the idol-worshiping mariners perish, all in response to Jonah's rebellious actions. Mark it down. God will wreck our plans when we refuse to obey his commands. God will wreck our plans when we refuse to obey his commands. So you ask yourself, why why does God seem to be acting so severely here? Why, Why does God seem to be acting so strong here? Well, the reason that God acts so severely is because sin is so serious. If you ever want to know how much God hates sin, look no farther than the cross. The Lord displayed his settled, intense hatred towards sin by crucifying his son on a Roman cross. God hates sin enough to kill his son for. Sin is always a serious, serious offense. Our sin sets itself up as an affront to God's sovereignty. I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating. Every time we sin, be it in word or thought or action or motive and deed, whatever vehicle it comes careening forth in, every time we sin, we set ourselves up in opposition to God's sovereignty. And brothers and sisters, that is a war we will not win. We won't. One pastor says this, rebellion never escapes God's notice. And it's foolish for you and I to think that we can resist God's God's will without impunity. The Lord may let a man go for a certain period of time in his steps, but when God does step in and when God does move, he moves with no uncertainty. He moves with great decisiveness. God may let us go in our disobedience and rebellion for a little while. But make no mistake about it, he will step in and he will act because all sin is an affront to his sovereignty. And as believers, we're not just talking about the lost world out here, friends. As believers, if you and I think that we're beyond the purview of God's judgment because of the grace of Christ, we need to remember what the writer of Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, that the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God will decisively step in discipline his own. God will not let us sin successfully. When we rebel, when we sin against the Lord, God will do whatever it takes to arrest our attention that we might return to him. In some cases of rebellion, God might actually take us out of this present life as a result of our disobedience and sin. Lest we have any casual approach to sin and rebellion, let me just remind you of the story that we pick up in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which recounts the chilling story of Ananias Ananias and Sapphira, who simply lied about a portion of the proceeds that they had received from the sale of their land, kept some back, gave some to the church, and then Peter comes and exposes their fraud, and then God opens the ground, devours them, takes them out, stops their heart on a dime. 
You see, sin blinds us so that we choose short-term gains or comforts in this life, heedless of the long-term loss that sin always brings. We think about the immediate cost of ownership, but we oftentimes don't think about the true cost of ownership. Neither do we oftentimes think about the true cost of sin. This storm here, I would submit to you, is actually God's graciousness, is actually God's kindness, is actually God's benevolence in tracking down his servant. God sent the winds, God sent the rain, God sent the storm to call Jonah back to himself and back to his duty. It's a great mercy to be reclaimed and to be called home when we go astray, even though sometimes it comes by way of storm. What God is revealing here in verse 4 and in the following is his unstoppable, unrelenting commitment to his own. God will not let us sin successfully. You can be sure of this, that your sin will always find you out. Now, that's heavy. Take a deep breath. This would be a good spot for me to insert a smile. My wife tells me I need to smile from the pulpit more often. That's heavy. Now, I don't say that to to joke or to make light about what I've just said, but let's take a deep breath as we continue on here. Number three, if you're taking notes, write this down. Sin always splatters. Sin always splatters. Sin always comes at a cost. Sin always invites the discipline of God. And third, sin always splatters. Let me turn your attention back to verses 5 and 6. Look there with me at your Bibles. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Let's take these verses kind of phrase by phrase here as we work through them. Each cried out to his own God. It's safe to say that this storm was unlike any other that these mariners would have seen. These mariners would have been used to fierce storms as they traversed the Mediterranean Sea. But this storm has even the saltiest of sailors fearful for their lives. And so how do they respond at first? Well, Jonah writes, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. Now, this is an interesting phrase here. The mariners are the sailors on this boat that left from the port at Joppa are probably Phoenician sailors. They're probably Greek sailors. And the Greeks were known well for their polytheism. As a matter of fact, you might remember Paul uh, back in Acts chapter 17, standing in the midst of Areopagus, Greek people there, saying, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are religious. For I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What we see taking place here in verse 5 is these Phoenician Greek sailors calling out to every God they can think of in an attempt that they might find one responsible for the storm and somehow appease him. What do they begin to do? After calling out, crying out, presumably hearing no answer, as we're calling out, we're crying out to false gods, 
They begin to hurl cargo into the sea. And this was probably a trading ship. It would have undoubtedly been heavy, heavy laden uh, with, with trading items. And the text says they began to hurl. Interesting uh, word there. It's the word tool. Okay? It's the exact same words. What you'll find in Semitic language is, is a lot of uh, play on words. We see it in Jonah a lot, and we see a lot of irony. Uh, things that if you, if you read the text in its original language... Uh, even if you have some, some helps, if, if you read the Hebrew in an interlinear, so uh, the Hebrew text uh, and then a translation of the text, you can, you can kind of pick up on some of the, the repetition and some of the irony and, 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 and some of the almost kind of funny things that come through in the original language. But the, the sailors here, the mariners, begin to hurl the ship's cargo overboard. Interestingly enough, God hurled a storm. Now the sailors begin to hurl the cargo overboard. And there are a couple of reasons the mariners might have started to jettison the ship's cargo. First, lightening the ship's load would have caused the ship to sit a little high, a little higher on the water there thus helping it ride through the storm. But it's also possible the mariners may have intended the hurling of cargo overboard to be a sacrifice to a god of the ocean, to a god of the sea, somehow to appease an offended god. If we can just jettison cargo, if we begin to make sacrifices and hurl all the payload of the ship overboard, maybe, maybe it's the god of the sea who's angry and will satisfy or appease that god. You see, the mythology of the nation surrounding Israel viewed the sea as a primeval force which had to be placated. Whichever the case was, whether it was to lighten the ship or whether it was to appease a god, it was probably both. Those attempts are futile. Because the Lord doesn't want their cargo. What the Lord wants is the obedience of his servant. God is not concerned about the cargo. He's concerned about the heart of his servant who's tucked away asleep in the sleeping quarters of this ship. Let me make a brief side note here concerning cargo, just maybe a point of application that I think we can draw here. From the action of the mariners, we might learn that sometimes it's good to lighten the ship of our own, or lighten the load, rather, of our own souls for safety. When we have less to carry, we oftentimes sail more safely. The weightier your life as a result of the amassing of things, the more precarious life's passage is often found to be. And so I would submit to each of us, myself included, I'm in the crosshairs here, that the losing of the things of earth makes the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I would submit to you that losses and crosses will in the end turn out to be our greatest gain. Losing things, losses, And crosses will in the end turn out to be our greatest gain. Now, look at this little phrase here. Jonah had gone down into the ship. Where's where's Jonah as all this is taking place? He's missing a lot here. Jonah's tucked away sleeping. The winds and the waves, uh, the storm is battering this ship such that the Hebrew per- personifies the ship. The ship thinks that she's about ready to break up. This is a storm that, that has even the, the saltiest of sailors scrambling for their lives here. And where is Jonah while all this is happening? Well, 
I think the story moves back in time here. I think what we see here is actually a flashback. I think we, we pick up to what Jonah had already done. I think Jonah paid the fare in Joppa, got on the ship, and went down into the, the, the sleeping quarters or the cargo hold and went to sleep immediately. I don't think that Jonah, amidst the storm, has some kind of blasé attitude and says, hey guys, you can weather the storm, I'm headed down to sleep. I think what we see here is a flashback. I think Jonah went down into the, to the interior of the ship right away when he boarded in Joppa. And what we're seeing here is probably a quick flashback in time, picking up on what Jonah had already done. But I think what we learn here, I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a, a teachable moment or a takeaway here, that Jonah's disobedience cost him his spiritual energy. I already mentioned back in verses 1 through 3 uh, that sin and disobedience cost us, cost Jonah the word of God. Jonah, Jonah couldn't, couldn't even hear the word of God at this point because he had suppressed it. And so now Jonah was hearing the Lord, so to speak, through the storm. He was seeing the Lord's word through God's works. And so Jonah's disobedience cost him the word of God. Well, I think we see Jonah's disobedience here costing him his spiritual energy. Sin has a way of doing that. Sin sucks the life out of you. I mean, when you and I are running from God and we're trying to manage our sin, it is emotionally and physically wearying. Sin always deprives us of our spiritual strength and comfort. The 17th century Puritan Jonathan Owen, which I would encourage you to read anything you can, uh, John Owen, especially his one volume, The Mortification of Sin, or The Putting to Death of Sin, uh, it, is, it will be an absolute balm to your soul. I think. John Owen said this. He said, Every unmortified or every sin not put to death does two things. First, it weakens the soul and deprives it of its vigor. And second, it darkens the soul and deprives it of any comfort and peace. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing take place here. Here here is Jonah. He is absolutely drained from trying to flee from the presence of the Lord in his sin. Sin will always do that. Sin sucks the life out of you. Again, it promises, but it never fulfills. It sucks the life out of you. It drains you. And so here's the ship reeling, the waves pounding, the wind shrieking, but yet Jonah is sleeping. The very same storm that struck panic in the minds of the ship's crew only served to rock Jonah into a deeper sleep, blissfully unaware of all the trouble he was in and all the trouble he was creating for others. This is where I want to pick up on the theme of sin splatters here. We find an important truth concerning sin in verse 5. And that is that sin causes trouble for the sinner, but it oftentimes causes trouble for those who are around the sinner as well. Such is the case here. Now, it's not that the mariners, pagans, were innocent by any means. But Jonah's rebellion brought about the consequence of the storm that they now find themselves in. And we would do well to remember that the actions, our actions, impinge on the lives of others. In this case, Jonah was like a magnet. And he attracted God's divine displeasure such that the mariners were caught right in the middle of it. Sin splatters. Sin is messy, friends. Sin is like painting with a can of spray paint. That spray paint gets on the object that it's pointed at, but oftentimes overspray gets on everything else as well. 
You know, it's interesting. You walk up in somebody's driveway and you see a, you know, the outline of a piece of cardboard where they had spray painted something and, and you can tell well, they painted something right there. Well, sin is the same way. Sin affects what it's directed towards, but the overspray of our sin gets on everything else and everyone else as well. Sin splatters. It's messy. D.A. Carson says this, Sin is social. Although it's first and foremost defiance of God, there is no sin that does not touch the lives of others. There's no sin that doesn't touch the lives of others. Sin always splatters. That's one of the things that we oftentimes fail to consider in the moment. You see, sin has an immediate cost. but There's a cost of ownership that we're oftentimes unaware of and unable to pay. Sin splatters. Look at this phrase here. The captain comes to Jonah and he says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Or how do you sleep, O you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. A better translation of the captain's response here to Jonah in the Hebrew is simply this, how can you sleep? How can you sleep? I mean, you've got all this going on out here. How in the world is it that you can lay down and sleep? And it might seem like the captain's words are, are the words of an angry individual. Like, how, how, what's going on here? How can you sleep? But I think the words of the captain are better understood in terms of bewilderment. You see, at this point, the captain knew nothing of Jonah's involvement with the storm. The captain did not know that the storm was the consequence of Jonah's sin and disobedience. But regardless, the one thing that the captain does know is that this is certainly not a time for rest. And so he says to Jonah, how can you sleep? Or what are you doing asleep? Now, this is one of those places where, again, there's some great irony or there's some great play on words in the Hebrew text here. Look what the captain says next to Jonah. The captain's words next here must have sounded hauntingly familiar to Jonah. I mean, just five verses later, God summoned Jonah to go to Nineveh saying, Arise! Go to Nineveh and call out against it. And now in a moment of desperation, the captain, the ship's captain, tells Jonah, arise and call out to your God. It's interesting to note here that Jonah is being told to call out to the very God from whom he is on the run. The wind and the waves didn't wake Jonah up. But the rebuke of a lost ship captain seems to arouse his attention. Oh, what a sad thing it is, friends. And I've had this happen. Your pastor has had this happen when a lost person rebukes a believer. What a sad thing it is when a lost person rebukes a believer. Interestingly enough, we're not told that Jonah rises to his feet and joins the prayer service up on the top deck. Jonah didn't want to seek God. Jonah had already heard from God. The problem is is that he didn't like what he heard. Such is our problem as well. The problem is that we don't hear God. God has spoken to us very clearly. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The reason we sin is because we don't like what we hear. 
And so we decide to do our own thing, to go our own way, to try to flee from the presence of the Lord, albeit an unsuccessful attempt. Sin breaks fellowship with God. It affects everything in our lives, even our prayer life. I would have you notice here that Jonah's sin cost him his power in prayer. Jonah's sin cost him the word of God. Jonah's sin cost him his spiritual energy. Jonah's sin cost him his power in prayer. A loss of power in prayer can oftentimes be an indication that we are far from the Lord and we need to get right with him. I mean, the psalmist reminds us in Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. When you and I are on the run from God, you can rest assured that our prayers will be hindered a certainty. When we're on the run from the Lord, we can rest assured that our prayers will be hindered. If we fail to obey God's word and fail to keep short accounts, then it won't be long before our once sensitive spirits fail to respond to the sound of his voice as communicated to us in his word. I don't mean voice in any mystical way here. We'll fail to respond to to the voice of his word clearly communicate to us. These are sobering lessons for us here. You see, we don't, we don't stand on the sideline and point a finger at Jonah. We are Jonah. You and I are Jonah. Oftentimes when I'm meeting with individuals in, in a counseling setting, one of the things that I'm quick to say is, is the only thing that separates you and I is what side of the table we're sitting on. I'm more like you than I am dislike you. We're more similar than we are dissimilar. The seeds of every sin under the sun reside in my heart, and the only thing that they need to grow is to be watered. And so we don't stand on the sidelines and point a finger at Jonah and say, oh, Jonah was just so disobedient. Here's Jonah trying to, uh, in a a futile attempt to flee from the presence of the Lord, he scrounged up some change, whatever the the cost of the fare was, and he's going in the opposite direction. I mean, what, what, what a numbskull. But we are Jonah. We are Jonah. Some of us here this morning may even be on the run. Interestingly enough, the more we suppress God's word, just like we saw Jonah do in verse 1, the fainter that word seems to sound to us. This isn't because God has lightened up or because God has changed his will. It's because sin has hardened our hearts and stopped up our ears. Sin will always do that. Persistence in sin, continuing in sin, causes the word of the Lord to sound fainter and fainter and fainter. When we suppress that conscience, when we sear that conscience, when we persist in disobedience, God's word that was once loud in our hearts, that was once loud in our minds, has now become a faint whisper. Jonah lost the voice of God. He lost the word of God in verse 4. He lost his spiritual energy in verse 5. Here he is slumbering in the sleeping quarters of the ship. He lost his power in prayer in verse 6. And we'll see that Jonah, I don't know if he loses it, but he certainly mars his testimony in verses 7 through 10. We'll pick that up next week. You see, sin promises to fulfill, but it leaves you empty-hearted and empty-handed every single time. It deceives and it brings death. Remember, sin. Sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. It'll keep you longer than you're willing to stay, and it will cost you more than you're willing to pay.
Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning just confessing that we are Jonah, that we are disobedient, that we are rebellious, that we do at times suppress your word, that we do at times in our sins set ourselves up against your sovereignty, that we challenge you for your sovereign throne because we want to be in control of our own lives, because we want to call the shots, and we think that telling you no will fly. But God, just as you've communicated to us here in the pages of Jonah, you will never take no for an answer. And you are prepared to sink the ship of our lives in order to draw us back to repentance, in order to draw us back to yourself. God, I pray if there's a person here this morning who is actively in sin and rebellion, who's actively on the run, who's a fugitive, that you would arrest them, that you would incarcerate them uh, and draw them back to yourself by whatever means necessary, Lord. That is a gracious, kind, and benevolent action on your part, uh, that you would send whatever tempest needs to be sent uh, to bring your servants to repentance. We ask that you would do that in our lives for the name and the renown and the glory of your son and our obedience and faithfulness to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.